Hey, true crime listeners, I'm Kayla. And I'm Kayla's mom, Alicia. And you are listening to True Crime Exposed. Everybody, welcome to our show. I'm sure if you clicked on us today, you're searching for true crime cases that you may have never heard of. Well, you made it. You're in the right place. I'm glad you're here. We are a mom and daughter duo. I host the show. My mom listens. We discuss brand new cases every week, and I want you to feel right at home with our casual storytelling. We created True Crime Exposed to not only expose some of the worst people that exist among us and commit these terrifying crimes, but most of all, to give every victim's story exposure. I want to support the life of anyone who is taken from us unjustly, and that's what I'm doing by sharing these stories. We can all be victim advocates. We love being that voice for those that no longer have one. So thank you for listening to us and for helping these stories be heard. Please help us out by leaving us a five-star written review on Apple Podcasts. Share us on your social media. Follow us on social media. You can find us on everything at truecrime underscore podcast. We have a TikTok where I share short stories and stories from our episodes and all sorts of true crime stuff. We have an Instagram where we share pictures and everything from each case we share. Please help us out. Thank you for your support. I'm seriously overwhelmed with gratitude. I love you all. Are you ready for today's case? Okay, so today I decided to choose a case out of Australia because remember I was looking at our stats the other day, like in our podcast hosting site, and something like 24% of our listeners were out of Australia, and I thought that was pretty cool, so I decided to choose a case out of there. Awesome. I would love to visit Australia someday. I know. I want to go so bad, and so does Jacob because his dad went on a mission there. That looks so pretty. But... I was listening to Morbid Podcast and they were saying that Australia has like a huge mice problem. Like there's mice everywhere. Ew. So if you're from Australia, let me know if that's really real because I really want to go. But if I see a mouse, I will die. (laughs) (laughs) So like she was saying that when they go fishing, like they can't go fishing because all the fish they catch have dead mice in their mouths. Oh, interesting but i've never been i've never been to australia so i don't know (laughs) but i really want to go if that's not the case yeah just don't go fishing yeah as long as i don't see a mouse i'm good (laughs) um but yeah i thought that was cool that we had so many australia listeners so i just thought they would enjoy listening to a case from where they're at And I'm going to be sharing info from this episode on our Instagram and our TikTok, which you can find at truecrime underscore podcasts on both sites. So with this case, 
We are going back to January of 1990, which in Australia, from what I've read, January is actually the middle of their summer. So their warmest months are December, January, February, and March. And then this case, I actually started by just looking into one case. Like I didn't go searching for today's episode. Really, I was just searching for one specific case. And then that one case led me into like a million other things. And it's just like so much and so crazy. All right. Well, let's hear the story. So those of you who are from Australia, bear with me because it was a little bit confusing for me to understand like each of the cities and everything. I think I kind of got a pretty good idea of it and hopefully I'm explaining everything right. And if I mispronounce anything or mispronounce names, just bear with me on that because... I'm obviously not from there, so I'm doing the best I can to share this story with you in all the correct ways. So Richard Johnson's phone started ringing late one night in January of 1990, so he picked it up and was wondering who might be calling him. On the other end of the phone, Richard heard a man's voice that he did not recognize. The man explained to Richard how he found his number inside the toilet block at Alexandria Park. He assumed Richard left it there for someone to find and he scored because this man was interested in meeting up with Richard. His heart was racing as he agreed to come meet the man at the very park that he had left his phone number. Wait, he, Richard left his phone number inside a bathroom at the park? Yes. So there's a park, Alexandria Park, and there's a toilet block. So like a building with toilets in it. And Richard had left his number inside for someone to find. Okay. So this man called Richard and asked him to meet up. I mean, I I was thinking that was a little strange, but there was no social media probably back then to be able to hook up with people. Exactly. So Richard quickly got ready for his meetup and his heart raced as he approached the park. He was eager to meet his date for the night. As he walks towards the toilet block in the deep darkness, he noticed a group of about eight high school kids just sort of standing around. He anxiously was scanning the crowd and he was looking for that lone man that he was supposed to be meeting. So he thought to himself, maybe he would just go into the toilet block. The man could be waiting for him in there since this group of teens was standing outside. But as he goes to open the door to the toilet block, one of the teens yells out to him, asking him if he's Richard. As soon as the word yes slips out of his mouth, he realizes what is happening. They pranked him? Well, I wouldn't say pranked. Richard cried out as the teens beat him, kicked him, and stomped on him. Oh my gosh. Once they finished this vicious attack, they all ran off into the night, while Richard lay in the grass unconscious. Ultimately, Richard's injuries were too severe, and he would die that night due to a burst liver and massive internal bleeding. Oh, that is terrible. I just don't even understand how... Um, people's conscience let them do this kind of stuff. No, it's like so, so sad. Yeah, that is just terrible. 
When Les Skidmore heard of the violent bashing of 33-year-old Richard Johnson, he was sick to his stomach. He always had a bad feeling about that toilet block being directly across the street from the school's playing fields where he was the principal at Cleveland Street High School. At this point in Sydney's history, there was this epidemic of what they call gay bashing. Gay men were in danger here, and it was usually perpetrated by a gang of teen boys. Homosexuality had very recently been decriminalized in 1984. So in 1990, when Richard was bashed to death, this was unfortunately somewhat common. And Richard's case is absolutely not a standalone case, which in the U.S., like sexual relations with someone of the same sex wasn't legalized nationwide until 2003. Oh, wow. Yeah, which I didn't know was that recent. I don't know if it was decriminalized in the U.S. before that, like if people wouldn't go to jail for it, but like it became fully legal in the U.S. in 2003. Jeez, that just seems so recent. I mean, you were kind of, what, a teen, a young adult in like 19... 90. I was, yeah, I graduated in 95. So, like, did you notice, I don't know, like, homophobia and, like... I mean, I didn't really notice stuff in high school. I don't know if that's because I wasn't paying attention or I just didn't... I mean, I just feel like I loved everybody. So, yeah, I, I don't... I don't, like, know any specific stories of, like, people getting beat up or anything. But I know a lot a lot of people were a lot more quiet about it. Yeah. Then. You just, like, weren't paying. Yeah. And you were just a teenager, so. Yeah. So, the police were able to identify the boys involved in Richard's murder, and they were charged. I believe we don't have the names of those involved maybe due to the fact that they were underage when they committed these crimes. But while the boys awaited their trials, which were set for later that year, they were actually still in school. Some parents of the other classmates were outraged, but most weren't. An overwhelming amount of sympathy was felt by the community for the boys. So although there was some pressure to get these boys out of school, Les Skidmore decided to let them continue to attend school in person while they awaited trial. The students in the school were shocked that these boys that they attended school with were involved in Richard's death. But most of all, they were shocked that they were actually charged with murder. Some of these kids seriously believed in their sick little minds that they could not get in trouble for what they call gay bashing. The cultural attitude at the time was that gay men were criminals, that they were child molesters. If only Richard hadn't been gay, then he wouldn't have been killed. And people actually believed that it was his own fault. Many people at the time had the belief that the police were supporting them, that the cops wouldn't do anything about bashing gay men. And unfortunately, they had somewhat of a reason to believe that because, like I said, this was not a standalone case. And many times, some of the New South Wales police did choose to turn a blind eye. That is just, um, that just makes no sense. Like, you took a life. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if they're gay or what, whatever they are. You can't murder people. You can't. 
beat people to death. No. That just makes you a terrible person. So these teens responsible for Richard's murder became known as the Alexandria Eight since they had killed Richard in Alexandria Park. A news clip shown in the documentary Deepwater The Real Story states, quote, The attack on Mr. Johnson was described as the most severe bashing a man could receive without the use of weapons. He was kicked and jumped on, causing horrendous injuries. I got so much info from this documentary. It was extremely helpful because information about these cases on the internet is actually pretty slim. That's how I actually started getting into all these other cases. Because originally I was just looking into Richard Johnson's death. But as you'll see, there's so much more to the story. And this documentary does a really good job. So the Alexandria 8 did get convicted of Richard's murder. Three of them were convicted of murder and the other five were convicted of manslaughter. It was discovered that the Alexandria 8 targeted gay men often at Marks Park, which is near Bondi Beach and Tamarama Beach. So I'm not from Australia. So like figuring out all the places was like a little bit confusing to me which I talk about it in a little bit, but basically we're in Australia and then within Australia, we're in New South Wales and then even smaller, we're into Sydney, Australia. And then it seems within Sydney, there's a bunch of other places. So we're talking about all these these places like within Sydney. So Bondi and Tamarama are like two beaches And they connect with a coastal walk and Mark's Park is right there too. The police were able to match the shoe print on a pair of shoes to the patterns left on Richard's skull. They were also able to secretly record these boys and I'll read some of these quotes. Quote, we went fag bashing, not just one, maybe 30, maybe 100. It's a sport, mate. End quote. Quote, I wish I would have done more to that Johnson boy if I'm going to get 10 years. End quote. Quote, I threw a fag off a cliff at Bondi. End quote. Another news clip in the documentary states, quote, the judge found all four men were motivated by peer group pressure. One of the young boys tried to shake off his image as a sissy. All were angry at the conduct of homosexuals, but the judge said that was no excuse. Every member of the community was entitled to the full protection of the law, end quote, which this sounds like a good judge, thankfully, because at the time it seems like there was not a lot of care for the gay community. Oh my gosh, it's just so sad. I I do not understand how people think like that. Me either. Like that they're the judge of who deserves life and who doesn't. Right, and it sounded like they had no remorse whatsoever. No, not at all. And I think this next guy we're talking about, he talks to some of them and he says a lot of them don't have remorse. And this guy is Steve Page. He is a detective and he actually took it upon himself to go back and investigate different gay hate crime investigations and expose that they weren't really investigations at all. So, yeah, Richard Johnson's case, they were able to 
convict people, but there were so many more cases and the that the police didn't pay attention to. So through doing this, Steve Page decided to interview many of those Alexandria 8. He stated in that documentary, Deepwater, the real story, that some had remorse, like I said, and some didn't. Oh, no, I said that they didn't. (laughs) But the ones who didn't, he said he could look in their eyes and see nothing, stating, quote, they're evil and they will stay evil, end quote. Did you say also earlier that um, they only got 10 years? Because that one, it said, if I would have known, I would have only gotten 10 years. Oh, the quote says, I wish I would have done more to that Johnson boy if I'm going to get 10 years. So I actually couldn't find how long they were sentenced, but I do think they're all out at this point. So it's probably pretty probable that they did get the 10 years that that boy was talking about in the recordings. And that's like nothing. Like nothing for beating a man to death after you like lure him there. That's just so sad to me. I know. So one of the boys now is a grown man and he's out of prison, like I said. So they didn't spend too much time there. He is now a father of four. And he explained to journalist Rick Fennelly that he had so much regret for his actions that night. He talked about how one day he will be responsible for sitting his kids down and having to explain to them what he did. As Rick tried to push this man into contributing to the Deepwater documentary, he got the response, quote, I can appreciate your persistence in getting me involved and understand the impact that it could bring to the documentary. However, please understand that it's difficult for me to have to revisit these memories that deeply affect me and ultimately bring me down. I see and hear things every day that remind me of what I did, and I convince myself every day that I'm a good man. If you have children, I'm sure you'd understand the importance of being a positive figure in their lives. I'm a father of four. My oldest is 18 and my youngest is five. So thankfully, they consume my life and keep me grounded. They protect me from my demons, end quote. So he seems like he has remorse. It's I I go back and forth because it's like, well, you know, he says it's like so hard for him. But you kind of took like Richard's life and he doesn't like get to have that opportunity to even have anything be hard for him you know yeah you you always feel a lot of empathy for (laughs) both sides me yeah I know I always like I do think I'm like I don't know what do they call it an empath I like can feel everybody's emotions so like I do like feel for him but then at the same time it's like I always feel the most for the victims yeah. Because it's like these these people made their choices. You chose to take a life and I'm not okay with that. It is hard. He he is you know, he 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 was a dumb kid, but that's not an excuse, but I mean, he's also a human being and is someone's son and someone's family member and but but what he did was not right. Definitely horrible. So Like I stated earlier, Richard Johnson's case was actually just too familiar in New South Wales. 
He was not the first gay man to be found bashed and killed, and he would not be the last. What they called gay bashing was an epidemic at this time in history. Young people were literally not aware that this was illegal, and multiple gangs of teenagers were bashing and killing these men at an alarming rate. Steve Page, that detective who I told you went back to look through the investigations, he exposed so much corruption in some of these investigations, and they were oftentimes ruled deaths as suicides. Many of these men were found at the bottom of cliffs in Bondi or Tamarama. And at the time that our stories are taking place, Bondi and Tamarama and Marks Park and Alexandria Park, those were all known as a gay beat. Gay beats is what they referred to in Australia as a place where gay men frequented and where sexual acts occurred. So that toilet block where Richard Johnson was found murdered was also a gay beat. So that's why he left his phone number there, because that toilet block was known as a place that men would meet up. And oftentimes they would leave their phone numbers there in search for a hookup. And so the teens that were committing these violent acts would target these areas knowing that they could find a gay man. And that's what the Alexandria 8 did on the night that they attacked Richard Johnson. They they called him knowing that he left his phone number there for that. Well, who knows if that was their only victim, too. And I don't think it was. As you heard in those recordings, the kid says, one kid says he, quote, threw a fag off a cliff at Bondi. So there's another one right there. One kid says that they went fag bashing all the time, maybe 30, maybe 100. And as you'll see in our story, I think they had a lot more victims than what they got charged with. Four months after Richard was found murdered, a teacher from that very school that the Alexandria 8 attended, Cleveland Street High School, didn't show up to his class. This man was Wayne Tonks. Wayne Tonks was described as a good teacher. He was well-dressed, and although he was gay and a few adults could tell, Wayne was very closeted about this part in his life. He did not want to be exposed as a gay man because he feared what could happen to him by his own students. He also feared that he may have been fired from his job just because so many people, including some of the police, still viewed gay men as low-level criminals. Les Skidmore, remember, is the principal that made that decision to keep the Alexandria 8 in school while they awaited trial. And he was the principal while Wayne Tonks taught at Cleveland Street High School because, remember, he doesn't show up to teach only four short months after Richard's murder. Les Skidmore explains in the documentary that he knew Wayne was gay. He could tell that Wayne feared this part of his life, so he never addressed it. But he didn't care what Wayne did in his personal life. He was a good teacher, so he wouldn't have ever fired him for being gay. One day, a schoolboy was taunting Wayne. He was so relentless that Wayne became really overwhelmed and distressed. He reported these actions to that principal, Les Skidmore, and Les punished this boy by suspending him for four days. Instead of returning to school, this kid was so butthurt that he actually received a punishment, he decided to never come back to school. 
this kid actually ended up being one of the teens in the Alexandria 8 that was involved in Richard's murder. Wait, so he was taunting his teacher? He was taunting his teacher, Wayne Tonks, who was gay. And Wayne reported that to Les Skidmore, the principal. So Les Skidmore suspended. suspended him. Yes. And he couldn't believe that he got punished. So he just never came back to school. And he was one of the kids, Les believes, that was involved in Richard's murder. Days after these taunts were reported... Malcolm Smith was a detective when the New South Wales police received a call to do a home check at Wayne's home. When they arrived, their stomachs twisted because when they initially walk in, it doesn't look good. Wayne's home appeared to be ravaged. A piggy bank was broken, the telephone wire was cut, chairs tipped over, and then there they saw it. Wayne Tonks was laying on the floor. His ankles, knees, and hands were all tied together with green commercial tape. Like so much tape. There was absolutely no way Wayne could have freed himself from this tape because it was so thick and so excessive. His eyes and mouth were also covered in this tape. And then a plastic bag was placed over his head to suffocate him. While Malcolm recalled the discovery, he had tears in his eyes. This was a horrifying scene. That sounds like it. Yeah, that would be really traumatizing to see. So this is the teacher? This is a teacher that was found in that way, yeah. And was it the eight that did it? Well, they do become suspects. Okay. So in response to this devastating act, Sue Thompson, who worked for the New South Wales Police as a gay and lesbian consult, went to the school and ran this three-day workshop where she took 20 gay and lesbian people and had the kids ask them questions. It was the first time in their history that anything had been done like this, and it was important that it was done. This was only six years after being gay was even legalized. So the resistance to acceptance was abundant across Sydney. Sue talked about how teens during these days felt that they had to prove their masculinity. And to do that, they needed to, quote, bash poofters, which is what they referred to gay men as, poofters or poofs. So you'll hear me say these different words. And obviously, if you're not from Australia, like me, you probably wouldn't know that that's what they're referring to. So bashing is like the beating and poofters is like what they were referring to the gay people as and beats were where like gay men regularly met up prejudice and homophobia was clearly very common at this time as a social attitude well what i was thinking is he probably was a really fun teacher so i would think that a lot of the kids would probably be saddened by his death yes With this teacher being murdered that taught at the same school where kids were responsible for another death, it was suspicious, and the Alexandria 8 did become suspects right away. Dean Ingram was a student at Cleveland Street High School, and during his school days, he attended and watched groups of teens go gay bashing. Dean described this as hunting. It was like a sport for these guys, something to do. 
Dean was so ashamed to have ever been a part of it as someone who stood by and watched it happen to other gay men. He was usually hanging out with the crowd of girls that would watch. His shame was apparent in the documentary as he explained himself as a follower, someone who caved to peer pressure. He explained that at this time, the teens truly believed that these men deserved it. They hated them. They wanted to hit them. When Mr. Tonks was killed, Dean was devastated. This was a teacher that he loved. He was shocked to find out that Wayne was gay, but horrified to find out that he had been murdered. This was one of his favorite teachers. And at this point, Dean was realizing that he was gay himself. The murder of his beloved teacher rocked his world and instilled this huge fear in him about being attacked himself and made it hard to accept himself for who he was. Shane Brown made an appearance in this documentary that I told you about. He was a youth and community worker and worked alongside Wayne Tonks. One day he decided to ask Wayne about being gay and simply just wanted to get to know him better, but it scared Wayne so much that Shane was onto his closeted secret and he did not want anyone else to find out, so he refused to talk to Shane ever again. Shane explains how Wayne really isolated himself and lived in this own bubble. It was really sad to watch him fear these things about himself. So remember, the Alexandria 8 that killed Richard Johnson, they were suspects in Wayne's murder as well. But ultimately, two different teenage boys that also attended Cleveland Street High School were charged in Wayne's case and one of them was convicted of the murder. Between 1989 and 1999, there were 46 known gay hate murders that took place in New South Wales. There is an additional 30 cases that remained unsolved, and looking into these unsolved cases is what Steve Page started to do with those investigations. Most teenage gangs hunting gay men for sport were targeting those different gay beats around Bondi and Tamarama. Both beaches had cliffs and deep water, and they're just a few minutes away from each other. These beats were targeted because they were secluded, and they were usually frequented after the sun set. Teen boys admitted that they would come across men in the bushes together and attack them here while they were vulnerable. John Russell was just another, air quotes, normal kid growing up. And then he hit the age of about 15 and his family started to notice something seemed different about him. Not different bad, but just different. John's brother Pete said it was something about John's taste in music. While Pete and most of their friends were listening to ACDC and Pink Floyd, John Russell would come home with a Donna Summers album. Do you know who Donna Summers is? I do. I don't. (laughs) (laughs) but i assume a woman singer but it's a woman singer that's not rock and roll right so john russell would bring her albums home and ted russell the boy's father would scoff to himself that there's something wrong with that boy 
which obviously this isn't a great thing to say about your child that is getting to know themselves and come into their own. But over the years, Ted did actually accept his son for being gay, stating, quote, he was my son, the oldest boy. So it doesn't matter if he's gay or whatever it is. He's still your kid, end quote. Although being gay was very hush-hush at this time, Pete, John's brother, said everyone knew John was gay. It wasn't a secret. Their friend's parents knew, their neighbors knew, and thankfully everyone seemed to accept John and his freedom to be himself. But Ted was still concerned for his son's safety. He would tell John to be cautious of others, stay aware, and just be careful. It was a dangerous time in history to be gay. John Russell was a barman who worked in the eastern suburbs, and he was 31 years old when he went to work just less than one year before Richard Johnson's murder on November 23, 1989. After he finished working, he came home and he got changed and dressed up and told his brother Pete that he was going out for the night to drink with some friends down at a hotel near Bondi. The last sighting of John would be of him walking out of the hotel and across the street. The following day, the New South Wales police came to the public school where Pete Russell was working. Police explained to Pete that their father, Ted Russell, could not be contacted. So their second stop was here, to him. Pete wondered why the police would be trying to contact either of them. And then those heart-piercing words flew out of the mouth of the officer. We found a body, and we believe it's your brother. We need you to come with us and try to identify the body. Pete's heart immediately started racing and dropped into his stomach. This cannot be happening. It's not his brother, he thought to himself as he opened the door and got into the police car that would be escorting him. They've made a mistake. He's probably just hurt or it's not even him. But when Pete walks to the body and they pull the sheet down, he sees his brother, John Russell. He knew it as soon as he saw him wearing the same jumper as he had put on the night before to go out for drinks. Half of John's face was missing from hitting the rocks where he was found, at the bottom of the cliffs near South Bondi Beach, near Marks Park, where there were no lights and a cliffside right by the park, a park known as a gay beat. I wonder if all the guys that were going there knew um, like, that these assaults were happening. I don't know. I'm sure like in the earlier days it was kept more quiet but I I don't think it was you know I don't think they were connecting it a lot of times the police were saying it was suicide yeah I know I I, I so they may not have known how dangerous it was yeah because you think they would be scared to go there if with all these beatings and everything but I mean I guess if it wasn't yeah and I think considered murder in the documentary that I watched, there were a couple of guys that actually survived beatings and one of them named David McCon, or I don't remember, I need to read his last name exactly, um, but he, he said he went to the gay beats and he knew it was kind of dangerous, but it was also just like kind of exhilarating, he said, to go there and meet people and... So although he knew it was kind of dangerous, he still wanted to go, 
you know? So I don't think they knew the extent of it, though, for sure. Pete immediately suspected that someone targeted his brother for being gay. He started to sob as he informed them that it was his brother laying there in front of him. The officers got him back into their car and casually said, all right, we're done. And they no longer needed his help. Where can we drop you off? Well, he probably wondered like what the officers were doing about the death. Yeah. And and he he said it just seemed like they were like, all right, it's your brother. We don't need anything else. They just didn't act like they cared. So frustrated, he was ready to get out of that car as soon as he could, and he went home and began to grieve the loss. And that's when his dad showed up. As Pete and John's dad, Ted Russell, walks into Pete's home, Pete realized that he has to break this devastating news to his own father. His dad explained it as, quote, hell of a shock, end quote. Police were very quick to rule John's case as a suicide but it just didn't make any sense. First, John had an inheritance that he had just received, and he was planning to use the money to build on some property. He had all these plans to move and start a good life for himself. He wasn't depressed. He was happy. And second, Dr. Alan Kala, who is a forensic pathologist, noticed that the position John was found in at the bottom of the cliffs in the rocks was unusual for someone who would have been jumping off on his own. John Russell's head was facing the cliff while his feet were away from the cliff. All in all, he was also very far from the cliff. It looked as though he needed some velocity to get that far away. He was most likely shoved off that cliff. Now, the biggest indicator that this was absolutely not a suicide was that John Russell was found with hairs in his hand. Hairs that probably got there in a scuffle. And while he reached out to grasp for his life and stay atop that cliff. And what happened to these hairs? They were never tested. They were actually lost by the police. Oh my gosh. I know. Like that's ridiculous. You rule it a suicide. Someone just grabbed grabbed a chunk of somebody's hair and then jumped. <laughs> no. Yeah. Like that didn't happen. Yeah, and they he probably obviously didn't grab a chunk of his own hair, or he would have some hair missing. Exactly. And then the police also returned the clothing that John was wearing to his dad Ted without testing it and after they washed it themselves yeah probably because they ruled so it a suicide there was probably evidence on his clothes if they were in a scuffle he could have maybe gotten a little bit of blood on his clothes or from someone else or anything and they just washed the clothes at the police station and then gave them back to his family everything about John's case that the Russells learned from the police left more questions than answers. And to this day, John's case remains unsolved. In a very emotional moment of Pete's interview in the documentary, he says, quote, how would they feel if I was standing there dancing one of their children or their brother or their sister over a cliff and saying, bye, it's all over. Because when they did what they did, that's exactly what they did. 
They changed the course of my history, my family's history, my father's history forever. For what? For what did they get? What? He died with his cigarettes and his money in his pocket. Why the effing hell do you throw someone over a cliff? For what? End quote. Hopefully his family pushed him and they did something about it. They pushed them and pushed them, but the case is still unsolved and they they don't feel like they have very many answers. Aw, that's sad. So four months before John Russell was found dead at the bottom of the cliffs near Marks Park, Ross Warren, who was 24 years old, was last seen driving down the road after hanging out with a group of friends. Ross dated this man named Craig Ellis very casually, and this turned into a close friendship over the years. On July 22, 1989, Ross came over to Craig's around 10 p.m. and told him he was going to go out for the night with some friends. He asked Craig if it was cool for him to leave some of his stuff there, and he would head back after his night ended. Of course, Craig would let him leave his stuff at his home. And as Ross Warren walked out the door to go to the bar, Craig waved goodbye, not knowing that there would not be any more moments together. The following morning, Craig wakes up. He had tried to wait up for Ross, but he dozed off and fell asleep as the night grew darker. But now it's morning and Ross didn't come back. He still has not picked up his stuff. It was strange, Craig thought to himself, but he waited through the day. As the hours passed, he got more and more worried. By the evening, Craig knew that Ross would have to be showing up to his work very soon, and this was something he would absolutely never miss. Ross was a news presenter in Wollongong, Australia, which is just south of Sydney. Craig decided to call the news station just after Ross was set to arrive, and with a sinking stomach, he anxiously asked them, has Ross shown up for work today? No, he isn't here. Those words immediately made Craig sick as he had to explain to them that it had been 36 hours since he last saw Ross and something didn't seem right. Craig knew that Ross often met men down at Mark's Park, so he could have possibly gone there after his night with his friends. He speeds down there to search for Ross himself. He knows that area is dangerous and is more than worried as he drives over. Craig finds Ross's car parked at Mark's Park, and as he peers inside, he sees Ross's wallet laying on the seat. This was not a good sign, and he headed straight to the police station. The police, along with Craig and other friends, return to the area near Mark's Park and start a small search. They climb to the bottom of the cliffs and they find Ross's keys there. These keys aren't just laying across the rocks as though they fell out during a fall. Craig explains that Ross's keys were found inside a little pocket in the rocks. They had to have been placed there. As the news that Ross was missing under these mysterious circumstances spread to those that knew Ross, devastation was a rippling effect. Susie Elman was a colleague of Ross's that said he had the it factor. He was amazing on the news and everyone loved him. And although most of his colleagues did not know that Ross was gay, Susie did. 
Ross wasn't ashamed of who he was or who he loved, but during this time, being gay could have been detrimental to his career. So he was completely in the closet at work. Duncan McNabb was a former New South Wales police detective and says that it was very clear that something was wrong here in Ross's case. But the police at the time explained to friends and family that, oh, it was just an accident or a suicide. We're sorry for your loss, but his body will wash up soon. Jeez, that place had so many bodies and suicides, it seems like. So many deaths. Yeah, yeah, that's what I mean, the deaths. You would think that people would be like, what's going on here? Yeah, like I said, it was just between 1989 and 1999, so just 10 years, that there were 46 known gay hate murders and then 30 cases that remained unsolved. Holy cow. In 10 years. That is so many. Yeah. And Ross's body did not ever wash up. It has never been found, and his case has never been solved. There's a problem here, explained Jacqueline Millage, who is a former state coroner. A problem when the ones looking for the missing are his friends and his family. The ones doing the work to find out what happened to him are not the police. I mean, seriously, this was a time when it was known that gay hate crime was abundant in this area. Jacqueline determined that although Ross was never found, he was deceased. A flash of a news clip came up in that documentary that I watched. The newsman states, quote, Perception of particularly the gay community that the police aren't going to treat them properly is probably true. I think they have had that perception, end quote. And like, uh, yeah, they do have that perception because you guys aren't treating them like they matter. Yeah. Calling everything a suicide, it sounds like. Yep. Four years before the disappearance of Ross Warren and the murder of John Russell, Giles Matany was last seen walking along the coastal walk between Bondi and Tamarama. On September 15th, 1985, his neighbor was the one that spotted him on this coastal walk, but he wasn't even reported missing until 2002. Apparently, there was some miscommunication between friends, and it led all his friends to believe that he was reported missing, although that report never happened. Giles did have a partner who was out of town at the time that he went missing, and he believed another friend had filed a missing person report with the police, but it was never found. Giles was a French national who was living in Bondi, and although he was never found just like Ross Warren, the coroner, Jacqueline Millage, also ruled that he was deceased and stated that he likely met a similar fate to Ross Warren and John Russell who she believed were murdered at that same gay beat four years later. Now, remember, he wasn't reporting missing until 2002. So although he did go missing first four years earlier, he wasn't pronounced deceased until many years after Ross and John. Okay. Two years after Giles' death and two years before Ross and John, Raymond Keem decided to venture into Allison Park, another known gay beat in Randwick 
which is in the east suburbs of Sydney. Now, Raymond was actually married and had a son. So although he didn't necessarily identify as gay, he was visiting gay beats occasionally. So on January 13th, 1987, while Raymond was visiting this park, he was violently bashed here and murdered. His case remains unsolved. On December 28th, 1988, a Newington College teacher went to that toilet block in Alexandria Park. Remember, this is where Richard Johnson was killed by the Alexandria 8 one year later in 1990. The first case that we talked about in today's episode. William Allen was this teacher, and while he was in Alexandria Park, he met a terrifying fate. After receiving a deadly bashing, William was able to drag himself home where he would later be found dead. Due to those recordings the police have of the Alexandria 8, it is thought to be a possibility that a couple of those boys, along with some others, may be involved in William's murder because the recordings catch the boys talking about using a screwdriver to kill one of them, and William had a wound on his hand that would match this. However, his case remains unsolved. On August 22, 1992, Cyril Olson was out drinking before he came to meet his death by falling off the Rush Cutters Bay Marina into Sydney Harbor. But he didn't fall off this cliff due to being drunk. No, he was savagely beaten beforehand, and police were immediately able to state that he received a gay bashing and that this attack led him to his fall. However, a coroner decided to rule this fall as accidental. Even though Cyril's body was found without pants or shoes, but his pants were also found in the water. Police had received an anonymous tip that they heard someone talking about, quote, rolling a poof tonight, end quote. One year later, on December 23rd, 1993, Crispin Dye was found bashed after he had been robbed. Crispin was a singer and a songwriter and actually a road manager for ACDC. He had just released his own CD and was celebrating this accomplishment. His CD was titled, A Heart Like Mine. Crispin's mother, Jean, said that her son had so many girlfriends. But one day, he decided to have this talk with his mom, telling her, People say I'm gay, mom, but I don't know what I am. Crispin actually survived his injuries for a couple of days, but ultimately, he died on Christmas Day, 1993. The motive here may have just been robbery as three Pacific Islander men were seen going through Crispin's wallet. However, they may have also seen him as gay and decided to bash him. Or maybe both circumstances can be true. A Thai man was murdered near Mark's Park while sitting and conversing with his partner on a bench. They were approached by a group of three men and then assaulted with a hammer. His partner survived, but the Tamarama three were convicted of his murder and sentenced to 20 years. Two brothers, David and Sean, and their friend Matthew. I believe this letter that was presented in the documentary may have come from one of these men. A classmate testified against them, saying that they were excited to talk about what they had done to this man. They showed this classmate the blood on their shoes, saying, quote, 
I was kicking him in the head, end quote. Here's the letter that they presented in the documentary. And I think you'll see why I think it's from one of the Tamarama three, because it goes hand in hand with this murder. So, quote, 8th of March, 2016. I'm writing from prison in 1990. I murdered a gay man and seriously assaulted his companion. I was convicted of these crimes along with two other crimes. The night of the crime at Marks Park was one of dread, fear, anger, confusion. On the way to Bondi that night, I was fearful, confused, yet all of this was overshadowed with false pride, teenage bravado, and the desire to make others feel as miserable and lonely as I did as a kid. It did not matter if they were gay or not. Gay men were simply an easy conduit. There was no exhilaration. The most accurate way to describe what went through me both physically and emotionally was release. When I drank and took drugs, it opened this spillway just like a dam. I had no emotional intelligence at all. So that was my mechanism for a long time. In hindsight, I now see that gay men were shown to be an easy target for angry, maladjusted young boys. Gay men were much aligned in the 1970s and 80s. My opinion of gay men is now one of compassion, support, and friendship. I believe that gay men should be allowed to marry. I believe they do the nation more justice than the rest of us do. Yes, I have gay friends. One of my closest mates are gay. He's a good bloke. He knows my past and cannot identify the man I am now with the person I was then. If a young bloke told me he wanted to subject gay men to violence, I wouldn't say anything. I would ask him why. That would be my starting point to dispelling the misguided and ill-conceived views and beliefs he holds. Without experience and knowledge, one cannot develop wisdom. And my goal in that scenario would be to impart that upon the young man. What can I say to the family? I would say that their sons, brothers, etc. had every right to be there that night that my actions that night were abhorrent. No human deserves to be treated that way. I'm sorry I took your son's life that night. If I wasn't there, he would not have died. I denied him the opportunity to have a full and happy life. I caused immeasurable pain and loss in your family. For this, I am sorry. End quote. Well, he, he sounds like he, you know, truly feels sorry. But still, I mean, it's it's a hard because it's like you still did it. It's so hard because it's like, well, you shouldn't have done that. It's like hard to forgive. You know, like, I'm glad that some of these people are feeling remorse. I just think it's a it's really hard to forgive people for taking lives. Yeah. So on August 23rd, 1980, Gary Webster went drinking with Graham John Hort and his wife. It seems that Gary and Graham may have had a sexual relationship in the past. The three of them then returned to a motel in Campbelltown, which is located on the outskirts of Sydney. While at the motel, the two men start to argue, and this results in a big fight. During this fight, 26-year-old Graham decided to stab Gary 10 times and then strangle him with a bedsheet. After Graham killed Gary... He needed to prove his masculinity to his wife, right? So he made love to her on the floor, with Gary laying dead right there on the bed. 
They ultimately put Gary underneath the mattress, the mattress where they slashed the word poof into the fabric. Oh my God. They also arranged pieces of garlic bread to look like a cross next to his body, which is so weird. Yeah. They just sound so gross. Yeah. So Graham John Hort went to trial and was convicted of Gary's murder, but I could not find if the wife was tried, if she was convicted, because I think she should have been. Yeah. Mm-hmm. For sure. So then in 1998, Scott Johnson was found at the bottom of the cliffs at Bondi. And of course, police had ruled his death as a suicide. Scott had moved to Australia in 1986 to be with his partner that he had met and he wanted to live closer to him. Scott was actually from the United States and he had been a student at the University of Cambridge and was studying to be a mathematician. Scott was close with his brother, Steve, who lived back in the United States. One day, just before Scott decided to move to Australia, Steve and Scott were talking about a relationship Scott had. Scott was extremely shy, and so he wasn't letting out a lot of information. And then at one point in the conversation, Steve asked Scott, quote, is she pregnant? And Scott replies, quote, she is a he, end quote. Oh my God. I know. I I like that response. Just she is a he. Yeah. So no, not pregnant. Nope. Steve was surprised. He never suspected this of his brother. And he was so intrigued that he said they spent the rest of the summer talking about it. So when Steve received a message on his answering machine a couple years after Scott had moved to Australia that there was urgent news, he called Scott's partner, Michael Noon, back and received the news that Scott was dead due to suicide. He would not accept it. Scott would not, did not kill himself. For starters, Scott was found naked in the water. Why would Scott get undressed before jumping to his own death? This just wasn't what happened. Yeah. I, uh, most people I don't think would choose to have themselves found naked. Right. So in 2005, Steve started hearing all this talk about all the gay hate deaths surrounding those cliffs in Sydney. And this is years after Scott was found dead. And when he heard this, he could not stop his tears from flowing down his face that entire day. That day, he decided to hire an investigative journalist named Dan Glick. Dan looked into the area where Scott was found dead and found out that there had been multiple stabbings, assaults, and bashings in this area. Many guys would go up there to get naked and sunbathe. It was known as a gay beat, but the police were still in denial at the time that it was not a gay beat. And they continued to be adamant that Scott's death was a suicide. The head of homicide told Steve and Dan that they have about 700 other unsolved homicides, so they'll get to Scott's case in about five years or so. This was unacceptable for the duo looking for justice in Scott's case, so they pushed him and they pushed him until the department finally agreed to look into it six months later, coming to the conclusion that there was zero possibility of it being solved. So that was that. They're not going to look into it any further. However, media pressure finally encouraged them to reopen the investigation into Scott's death. 
although they didn't seem particularly happy about it. In 2017, Coroner Michael Barnes decided there was enough evidence for another inquest into Scott Johnson's case, which is basically an inquiry into the circumstances surrounding the death, and he was convinced that this was a gay hate crime. Finally, after 32 years of fighting for answers, Steve Johnson received the news that there was an arrest just last year, May of 2020. It is believed that these men met up and went to a popular gay beat, Bluefish Point. Together, there, by the cliffs, Scott Johnson started to undress, and it's alleged that Scott Philip White punched him and caused him to fall off the cliff. He was arrested at 49 years old and was 18 years old when he murdered Scott Johnson. Wow, so did these kids, like pretend that they were gay to get these men out there some of them did and then i don't know about this scott guy i don't know if he was actually going to pretend he had to have because if he like started to get undressed but it sounds when i was reading about it it sounds like they went to like they met up at a hotel and then they went over to the gay beat so i don't know if he was considering it and then he like freaked out when things were starting to happen but he might have been pretending i don't know i think his he pled not guilty in january of this year and i didn't see anything about his trial like having gone through yet so we'll have to keep an eye out for that and then we'll probably get more information yeah Mike Fuller, the commissioner now for the New South Wales Police, apologized to the gay community, stating, quote, I do think the plight of young gay men in Sydney and probably around the world was a very difficult one. And not only were they let down by the police, they were let down by the community and probably the media, end quote. These stories I told you today are not even close to the only ones. In 2017, Australia decided to review 88 deaths of men that could have been gay hate crimes. As we just saw in the Scott Johnson case, some have been solved now, and hopefully others will be as well. These men I talked about today are not the only ones. Many men were beaten but survived as well. David McMahon and Alan Rosendell talk about their experiences, about how they were bashed and how they survived. One man that was beating David literally said, let's throw him off the cliff like we did the others. David was able to get free and he ran and he ran. And I actually remember... In the documentary, when he's talking about running from these attackers, he was screaming, help me, help me. And someone off their balcony yelled out to him, we don't help poofters, which, you know, is what they refer to as gay people, which is just so sad. That area just is so... It was not good at this time Mm -mm. for the gay community. At every corner I turned in this case, there was another name. So much more than I could even fit into an episode. Different gangs of teenagers clearly had the wrong mindset, clearly were not being raised with the right social attitudes about others. These different gangs of teens included boys and girls. They hunted these men as a sport, and they treated them like their lives meant nothing. 
because of who they were. It was not fair and it was not okay. Australia isn't the only place that had this happen during this time in history. This was a problem all over the world and is still a problem today in many areas of each country. Stand up for those around you, everyone's a human, and everyone deserves to live their life. Did you know most kangaroos are left-handed? I didn't know kangaroo had hand preference. They use the left hand for tasks like grooming and eating. They use their left hand for precision and the right hand for strength. I love kangaroos. I see little tiny wallabies that look like kangaroos all the time at the zoo. I saw one of the those koalabies that kind of look like kangaroos at the zoo when I when I went to the zoo with my grandpa after I was at Dingens. Bye. Have a fun day. If you enjoyed our show today, please share this story with your friends and onto your social media. We would love it if you help us continue to make this podcast by leaving us that five-star written review on Apple Podcasts that I know you want to leave. If you have any case suggestions, please email them to us at truecrimeexposed at gmail.com. I want to do this segment where we share stories or questions or craziness from our listeners. So if you have something to say or something crazy that happened to you that you want featured on the podcast, please email us. Follow us on all those social medias for pictures and info on each case we cover. Find us on Instagram and TikTok at truecrime underscore podcast or on Twitter at truecrime underscore pod. This podcast is written, researched, hosted, and edited by me, Kayla Waters. It's co-hosted by my mom, Alicia Jenkins. Our palate cleanser is given to us by my daughter, Charlie Waters. Our original graphic art was done by Arthur Max, and our music was created by Jaden Schultz. You can find him on Instagram at InPajamasMusic. Stick around to get all your organization info so that you can do your part in fighting these crimes. If you want to support a great organization, search Pride Foundation Australia. Pride Foundation Australia, PFA, which was formerly G-A-L-F-A, is a national philanthropic foundation specifically focused on funding lesbian, gay, bisexual, trans, queer, intersex, asexual, and other LGBTQIA community issues in Australia. PFA actively works to increase support for the Australian LGBTQIA and allied communities through fundraising, grant giving, collaboration, and commissioning projects. The foundation offers small grants, $500 per grant for awarded quarterly. 
They give grants in their current priority areas of homelessness, disability, and refugees and asylum seekers. It is a voluntary organization governed by a board of directors. The Australian Taxation Office has endorsed Pride Foundation Australia as a deductible gift recipient, meaning gifts to the GALFA public fund are income tax deductible. Go to their website, pridecenter.org.au. P-R-I-D-E-C-E-N-T-R-E.org.au. If you visit www.martygraws.org.au, you will find a website where they talk about different LGBTQI community groups. They say you can get involved in your local community. These social and support organizations do valuable work for the community and people in Sydney and wider Australia. They have a place where if you need to talk, you can call them at 1-800-184-527 any day, 3 p.m. until midnight, or you can web chat. ACON is Australia's largest HIV and sexuality and gender diverse health organization. ACON's head office is in Sydney, and they also have offices in regional centers across New South Wales, providing services and programs locally statewide and nationally you can visit their website to learn about the many services provided at acon and that's just one of the organizations that this website shows another one is australia and new zealand tongai rainbow alliance another one is australian asexuals another one is bi plus australia there's black rainbow so many organizations that you can find here that you can get involved with, that you can seek help from. I encourage you to donate or volunteer with these organizations. And if you don't live in Australia, search your state's organization where you can get involved and where you can make a difference.